This is the Sight and Sound podcast about the 2017 edition of Horror Channel Fright Fest with Kim Newman, Anton Bittel and me, Virginie Selavi. The festival ran uh, from the 24th to the 28th of August at Cineworld and Prince Charles in Leicester Square in London. It opened with Cult of Chucky and closed with Tragedy Girls. And in between, uh, 26 feature films were presented, uh, short films and also retrospective screenings, including Hammer films such as Blood from the Mummy's Tomb and Demons of the Mind, and also modernist yellow Death Laden Egg, uh, which was restored by Nucleus Films. If there was one theme that dominated uh, this year, it was uh, recurrence of violent crime, in, and that uh, was uh, present in some of the best films uh, that we saw at the festival, including Our Evil, Psychopaths, Freddy, Eddie, Low Life, Cold Hell, and Dogs. And those are some of the films that we're going to concentrate on today. So I think possibly one of the most intriguing films of the festival was Dogs, which was one of your favourites, I think, Anton. That's absolutely right. Um, I should say the title Dogs is spelled D-H-O-G-S. It's a combination of the word dogs and hogs. The film claims that dogs are submissive and obedient creatures and hogs are wild and aggressive creatures, and it combines those two aspects in one personage. It's uh, directed by Andres Gutierrez. It's a Mexican film and... Spanish. So a Spanish film. And if there is a through line, it's the character of Alex. It begins with a scenario in which she hooks up with an older man in the bar and they have consensual sex. There's then a second scenario in which she is attacked in the street, um, abducted and raped, both off-screen and then eventually on-screen by somebody else. And in the third scenario, she becomes an Avenger. And I say scenario because the film is very carefully and formally subdivided into three parts, and each of them is linked to the other one in what feels like a fairly arbitrary and uh, random way. And as the film continues, we slowly come to grasp what it is that is connecting these these different scenes. And it's a very Hanukkah-esque film. It's concerned with who is watching what is happening at all times, and we get multiple perspectives, both from different characters within the film and also from an artificial audience that the film occasionally cuts to that seems to be a theatrical rather than a cinematic audience, and also from cameras and even from eyes seen on a picture. And it's a very cold and alienating film that is punishing the viewer for daring to watch its material. And, uh, and, and you enjoy that punishment. I, I did indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't enjoy it so much. I, don't know I enjoyed I it less than Anton too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the uh, the punishment can be... You can press that button too many times, and I think this did slightly, although I think it's quite an impressive piece of work. It is still uh, yeah, another dragged into the desert and raped movie, and I think I've seen about 25 too many of those was, over, was, over, yeah. the, over the years at Fright Fest. That, that was part of the problem for me, that you have this very confident, assertive, liberated woman who decides to have sex with this businessman in the hotel, and then she kind of is punished for that, narratively speaking, and I thought that was a little bit of a return to things that I thought we had moved on yeah. from. <laughs> so that was part of my problem, but also that... Uh, more high ground when actually the film mm. is doing some dodgy things itself and which I think in my view you mentioned Haneke mm-hmm. is actually worse than Haneke's kind of more high ground when sort of denouncing voyeurism in audiences. 
Well, I mean, in its defence, I would say that, that without wishing to spoil the film, there is a reason why the the middle section takes place, the section in which she's raped, in which she's raped twice. Mm. It, it plays at first highly irrationally, but by the end of the film, you've come to appreciate why that scene is mm. there. And it's there because of the input of a character who is something like a director figure, but who is also a viewer. And... I felt that that this made the film reflexive enough to get away with what it was portraying. Oh. Fair enough. Uh, moving on to our second film about violent crime, Psychopaths. Psychopaths, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, maybe here's a little a theme seems to be emerging, is sort of the application of art house techniques to exploitation material, because this very much does that. It's filmed by a young American director called Mickey Keating, who's made... A whole bunch of films very quickly. Darling, Carnage Park and Pod, which have turned up at various previous iterations of, of Fright Fest. He works very much under the aegis of Larry Fessenden, the uh, American producer-director, who always appears in films he produces, often as kind of a presiding genius figure. And here Fessenden plays a serial killer who is interviewed just before he's executed and says that uh, when when he goes to the electric chair his evil will seep out into the world and inspire other murders which maybe that happens or maybe just everybody in the world of this film is crazy anyway because it it takes place in the sort of enclosed universe that you see in some filmmakers like Todd Solondz yeah there's a sort of an evocation of the look and style of past cinema. It's set in some nebulous past decade where all the technology is sort of mixed up. You have VHS machines and turntables and musical and fashion styles from the late 40s through to the early 80s. And it's about one long night in which several psychopaths sort of crisscross in a a kind of sort of mixed up La Ronde fashion and it also presents a kind of complicated revision of the psychopath figure. We have several different types of murder including two women who incarnate sort of, I don't know, Douglas Sirk's notion of a psycho (laughs) as well as the sort of more conventional serial killer who's kind of like out of a 1970s drive-in. And it's it's a very stylish, non-linear narrative film, which was shown late at night on the first night, which is a risky strategy, um, because there were those of us who were sort of willing to surrender to its approach, and those of us who left after 10 minutes because they couldn't take the fact that a story was never going to come along. For me, it was one of the best films we saw here. But I actually, like Anton with, with Dogs, I fully understand the, the counter-argument. I must say, in this case, I completely share your enthusiasm for Psychopaths, but was very aware. I think it had more walkouts than any other film. Mm-hmm. And we should say it has a storyteller. It has a formal narrator mm-hmm. who at one point mm-hmm. says, maybe you find the violence a little too gratuitous. Maybe yeah. you find the story too ambiguous. And yeah. the moment he says that, you realise this is a film that is very knowing mm-hmm. about what it's doing. And therefore, I think, like dogs, it gets away with it. It is also a beautifully sensual freak mm-hmm. show. I mean, it's a real freak out film. It's very psychedelic in its mm-hmm. imagery, increasingly so as it goes on. And if you just surrender to its mm. visual and auditory style, it, um, pleasures await. <laughs> oh. uh, one that was quite different from uh, everything else, really, was Our Evil, directed by Samuel Galley. Brazilian film, 
which was really like nothing else, I think, this year. Because he put his own money into the film, so he was quite free, mm. I think, to do what he wanted. So story of a man who hires a, a serial killer for reasons that we don't completely understand at first, but it has something to do with his daughter, I mean, the first man's daughter, and a supernatural demon. And I thought that was like... That was so interesting on so many mm. levels. And so um, uh, the relationship between the man and his daughter, the battle between good and evil, which ends up being between bad and bad, basically, <laughs> evil and evil in two different forms. It was a very mm. striking film, wasn't it? I, I thought it was morally really interesting. It's a film that is in two very distinct parts. Mm. And in the first part, as you say, it... it presents an action that mm-hmm. is just irredeemably evil, and the second part exonerates that action mm-hmm. and finds a kind of moral justification for it, but through a number of generic twists and shifts in subgenre. And I thought it got away with it. It's also yeah. quite Lynchian. It's very uh, surreal mm-hmm. and strange. Mm-hmm. And although right from the beginning it's clearly some sort of battle between good and evil, by the end it's a battle between good and evil on, a, on an almost cosmic or theological mm-hmm. level. So, yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah, I thought, again, this was one of the most impressive films we saw this year. And again, it's stretching the envelope of what we might consider a horror film or a fright fest film. And those are the ones I like, I think. I don't want to distance myself because there's a certain... Yeah, there are several of the films we saw over the weekend which are squarely in the middle of their genre doing stuff that we've seen before with degrees of competence. And actually some of the ones which are even a bit ramshackle, I like. I had a good time with them because I love horror as a genre. But also I recognise that there are these really interesting hinterlands. At the sort of, I think of it as the fraying edge of genre where, yeah, or, or an event horizon or something where you're just tipping over into this sort of vast unknowable cosmic weirdness and maybe David Lynch is the first guy to really go there but we're now dealing with the generations of filmmakers who grew up revering him or interested in his approach rather than maybe the the people who grew up yeah just wanting to make another Friday the 13th movie Uh, So uh, these films that dealt with violent crime very often also used genre to pass comments on some contemporary problems. Uh, In particular, we had immigration and racism in two of the best films of the weekend, uh, Low Life and Cold Hell. Uh, So Cold Hell is a German film by Stefan... Austrian, I think. Austrian yep. film. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, it's very importantly set in Vienna. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Witzki, yeah. uh, who made The Counterfeiters. So mm-hmm. that was uh, quite an interesting uh, film for him to make about a young woman who's of Turkish origin but Austrian-born and she drives a, a taxi and she's also a Thai boxing champion and she witnesses a murder and then the serial killer goes after her. That was one of my highlights. Mm, yeah, I like this. He also made Anatomy, which is a very similar yeah. structure, although a very this is a very different heroine, very different plot. Again, I really responded to this. I, one of the things that Anton and I discussed beforehand that we were grumbling about slightly was the predominance of, I suppose, essentially realistic crime movies over the more fantastical or science fictional elements, which kind of are what we look for in a Fright Fest film. But this is one of the the films I like the most, and it is a straight-up crime movie. I mean, it's an interesting serial killer. We see a kind of European-Islamic 
sensibility for the heroine, but also for the murderer as well. I loved the moment where she has to explain to the policeman that the victims have been killed according to an obscure verse of the Quran, and the cop says, so the murderer's a Muslim, and she has a moment and says, no, he's a maniac. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and in today's yeah. context, it's mm. quite pointedly yeah. you know, saying, no, this is not yeah. about religion, this is mm. about someone who's a psychopath. So that was also an interesting mm. aspect of the film that it made this point about uh, this use of religion to justify psychotic violence. Mm. Um, and she was a fascinating character, mm. I thought. She is, she's put in a position where you know that she's on the list of this killer. The killer mm. definitely needs to put, take her out of action. So she's very much she's cast in the role of victim and just refuses to play victim mm. at any point in the film and fights back every step mm. of the way which makes her a really interesting character. And she's also, she's alienated. She's not accepted as an Austrian, even though she was born in Austria because she's Turkish. And she's she, not accepted by her family. She's not accepted yeah. by her family. And she's been suffering abuse yeah. since childhood yeah. and, and will not stand for mm. it ever. I love the fact, it's one of the few tough chick movies I've seen where she has to keep thinking about childcare and it's not even her child. And the, um, the cop on the case has a father who's surrendering to dementia uh, and is also having to keep thinking about keeping his relatives safe and the fact that he can't explain to his dad not to give out his address to a serial killer who phones up and asks for it um, is a really interesting kind of barb of plot. And, and I know you said it wasn't, doesn't have any sort of fantastical elements mm-hmm. and it is kind of set in a realistic, recognisable world. At the same time, it's fairly implausible. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. and that's, that's the aspect also yeah. that works because it makes yeah. it exhilarating as an action yeah. film and it really mm. works as an action film. I mean, that scene in the, in the Metro, mm. yeah. brilliant, yeah. when <laughs> she just dares through this crowded carriage to get at the killer, that's mm. like fantastic action, like works as an mm. action scene. But it's got enough characterization that it's very engaging on the level of character and emotions mm-hmm. as well. And I think that's really important because she's not perfect. She's flawed. She's not perfectly strong. She has vulnerabilities. So I think that's why that mm. film is so engaging because, yes, it is an action film and it works in this way and she's like this kick-ass heroine, but at the same time it works on another level where it is about this strong and completely isolated mm-hmm. woman who has to deal with racism, misogyny, being alienated from uh, the culture she comes from, the culture she was born in, and, and that, that makes the film very affecting, I thought, as well as really exciting. Mm-hmm. And Low Life, I thought, what was interesting was that in both Cold Hell and Low Life, you have characters who cannot rely on the police, who cannot rely mm-hmm. on anybody apart from themselves, even though they are faced mm-hmm. with criminals. And they have to be self-reliant. They're on the margins of what we would expect in a civilised society. So that was quite interesting that those films drew attention to those people on the margins of everything because of poverty, because of immigration, uh, because of all sorts of things. So Low Life, uh, directed by Ryan Prose, an American film, which is very much an ensemble kind of film what did you think and it, low life foregrounds all of its most unpleasant material in the opening mm. sequence you know it's a sequence where mexican illegal migrants are abducted by someone pretending well someone who is actually an ICE officer but he's working freelance for a criminal and they're divided into those who are going to serve as child prostitutes and those who are going to be killed so that their organs can be donated for, for cash 
And, and in very graphic terms, this is shown. And from then on, it becomes this kind of rambunctious, Tarantino-esque comedy of mm. cross-cutting narratives and is, is really very funny and very entertaining. Mm. But it never forgets that issues of migration are at its heart. And it's probably worth saying that it's probably next year's films that are going to start acknowledging Trump's America and what mm. Trump has done to America. Low Life felt like one of the films that's on the mm. forefront of that. Absolutely. And, uh, and, no, I've um, been they, seeing they that coming for a couple of years. That. I think the first Trump film was actually 11 Cloverfield Lane, but um, which came out before he was elected. But yeah, no, you're right. In the way that horror always reflects what people are worried about or annoyed about, I see the current state of America is... It's good news if you're going to make horror films, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like bad times are good if you know you operate at the darker end. And the same's true in Britain. The other foreigner stranded movie we saw was Freehold, a British film, which is a very different approach to representing the alien. And it also proved that you can get away with doing the most appalling, dreadful things to a screen character if they're an estate agent. <laughs> yeah, there is nobody who would complain about horrible things being done to an estate agent. And this is a film about the subtle torture of an estate agent by somebody living in, in, in his cupboard, which obviously there's a great satisfaction to that, although the villain is not an uncomplicated character. And when he gets his own say... I think he raises some interesting points about why he is the way he is and how he hasn't had a fair break. That was also one of those films where, as you watched every scene, it all made sense. But you realise what it couldn't have showed is how they came to be in the same house, because it is inconceivable that Mm. that could ever have happened. Mm. But once you accept that fiction and go with that fantasy, I mean, in a way, it's a film about flatmates from hell, because all of the behaviours that these two characters exhibit are just like behaviours from the worst flatmate you've ever lived with. It's yeah. just one of them happens not to know the other one is there. Yeah. There was a little theme, uh, you know, we, every year we pick out little themes, of couples who are kind of bound together. Two of my favourite films this year were Radius, which is a weird science fiction film about a guy who is, is struck by alien lightning or some weird phenomenon, so that anybody who comes within a, a 50 feet radius of him dies except there's a woman who was struck at the same time and if she's within a 50 feet radius of him the effect doesn't work so they're stuck together and they also have amnesia and can't remember who they are or who each other is so that's another you know wonderful trap and also there was it stains the sands red which is a standard zombie apocalypse but it's about a woman trying to walk through a desert to an airport who cannot get rid of the one stumbling zombie who is stuck next to her, and then suddenly starts to realise he's the most reliable man in her life. And these weird odd couple type stories, they're coming on. And, and is this the is there a zeitgeisty thing there about the sense that we're trapped with our worst selves and are going to have to learn to live with them? We're talking about uh, where selves, I think uh, Tragedy Girls will go in that category where you have two so American films made by Tyler McIntyre where two teenage girls are obsessed with, well, starting a career as criminals, basically, yeah. <laughs> for fame. I mean, it's as much about uh, Twitter and the internet and social media as it is about serial killing and they kidnap a serial killer to learn the ropes. And very much they reflect each other's worst mm. self, don't they? Yeah, I think that 
there's a sense that one of the other big themes of not just horror, but in fact all cinema lately has been the way that social media has changed all kinds of interactions. And we had several... There was a little film called Bad Match, which is basically Play Misty for Me, but for the internet dating swipe generation. And this is Heather's, but for Facebook and Twitter and Instagram but with maybe a dash of that kind of natural-born killer's sense of the blend of celebrity and sociopathy, which, you know, I found this a a kind of highly colourful, engaging, charged, ever-so-slightly heartless film. (laughs) And though, you know, its two heroines are very kind of media-savvy and quite engaging Mm. narcissists who, after not just a high body count, but also a high number of likes for their different (laughs) media sites, their blogs and their Twitter Mm. accounts... And they discover a way of merging the two. The more people they kill, the, the more popular they can become. And I think what makes us like their characters is not what they do, but their friendship, which remains almost throughout the film. And when it's challenged, that's the moment we stop liking the characters. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it's like Radius, because it's a mm-hmm. film about the way in the modern age we negotiate our proximity to or distance from other people and what happens to that in a mediated world. And Tragedy Girls, it's also very, very funny. I mean, the comparison to... It's not just like Heather's because it's about sociopathic teens, Mm. but also because the lines are thick and fast Mm. and the cultural references just don't stop Mm. coming. And it's quite refreshing as well. It's always pleasurable to see two teenage girls who are absolutely not interested in romance or any sentimental crap and are much more interested in their own friendship, their relationship. That is the central relationship in the film. That's great. So I enjoy that. (laughs) But yeah, it's also very, very funny. Uh, They are witty. They are engaging, Mm -hmm. even though they are completely psychopathic. And then there was also uh, Fashionista, uh, directed Mm -hmm. by Simon Wemley, British director, but American film, which also engaged with the shallowness of the modern world and especially consumerism, and which had a really interesting central female character, played by Amanda Fuller, who was already uh, the star of his very good uh, Red, White and Blue uh, film. What did you think of that? I, I love Fashionista. I must say, Simon Romley, it's a tragedy that Simon mm. Romley is not better known in this totally country. Agree. He is a British director. Mm. His films, if they get a screening at all in Britain, usually do not have a very long run. And to my mind, he is consistently Britain's best genre director, uh, best living genre director. <laughs> and Fashionista is a, it's a very challenging and difficult film to watch because it chops up its narrative into different mm. chronologies. There's a dedication at the end to Nicholas Roeg, and you can see exactly mm. why, because of the yeah. way in which the film is edited and its use of montage. Yeah. You can also tell that his favourite rogue film is Bad Timing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and Which it is has, a good choice. Yeah, good choice, absolutely. <laughs> no, I was very taken with this movie as well. And it's one of those things, I find it very hard to separate the film from its protagonist. Yeah. It's so much about her. I actually saw this not last weekend, but a long time ago, six months in spring. And it's like the details of the plot have grown vague in my mind but i remember her and her obsessions and again it's it's a different kind of madness to the one we used to there was a little blip recently of chick going crazy films which is a form that i suppose goes back to repulsion but this was perhaps the most interesting of them it's the most weirdly stylish i think it was interesting also because I mean, it is about her obsession with clothes, although you could say that her husband is just as obsessed with stuff as she is, possibly more. But it's also about how you deal with betrayal. And it's as much about that as it is about her obsession with 
owning objects and owning mm-hmm. clothes specifically. But yes, the central character is so beautifully crafted by mm-hmm. both him and the lead actress. Uh, and that's something he does really well. He writes excellent female characters who are incredibly resonant mm-hmm. and multifaceted and very deep. So how did you feel about 68 Kill then, on, in the, the other film about crazy women? I didn't see that uh, one. It didn't uh, appeal, uh, I have to say. Well, I must say, I, ra- I rather enjoyed 68 Kill, but it is a, it's a it's very a cartoon, provocative film because yeah, it makes yeah. a cartoon out of certain types of popular misogyny. Yeah. And, and basically it's a film about a young man who is going out with a young woman who has him round her finger and he gets beaten up by her regularly and will do anything that she says because he idolises her and she knows it. And she persuades him to commit a small crime to rob, I think it's $68,000 from someone's safe, assuring him that nothing will go wrong. Um, But everything does go wrong and they end up on the run and then he ends up on the run from her because she wants to kill him and he encounters various other women along the way. So it's almost like an odyssey. It's this character who keeps encountering women who are seductresses Mm -hmm. and who make his life hell in one way or another. It's very like Ross Meyer's super vixens, actually. It's one of those films that I think Anton and I enjoyed but feel a bit ashamed about. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And that was the experience I had talking to a lot of people. I don't know. We all came out and said, you know, that's really problematic, but boy, does it move, you know, and it's got a style. Right. So, I need yeah. to check this out. And yeah. We should add, and this is probably not spoiling the film, it's problematic because it's message, and it's a message delivered in no uncertain terms yeah. is stay away from women and you'll be okay in life. <laughs> yeah. That's its message. <laughs> That's the yeah. message we're going to end with. Yeah. This is the end of the Sight and Sound podcast uh, on Horror Channel Fight Fest 2017 edition. Thank you to Kim and Anton. Thank, Thank you. you.